Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people and the family of God and that we get to experience you and we get to experience you together as your people. And, and for the special way that you show up in our midst, amongst us, when we gather together to seek your face. And so, Lord, I welcome your presence here. I welcome you and invite you and ask that you would come and speak to our hearts through your word, by your spirit, and that hope would be imparted to us tonight, that we would get your perspective concerning this beautiful and glorious design of marriage and family and and work, that we would get your perspective, God, and that we would apply the truths of the gospel to those areas of our lives. And that we would see your glory and goodness manifested there. I ask that you would help me to communicate clearly and faithfully with your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul, in the first half of Ephesians, went pretty deep theologically in several concepts. Concepts such as God choosing us and adopting us and and concepts of, uh, regarding the plans and the purposes of God, what God is doing in redemptive human history. And then in chapter 4 through 6, Paul goes, he brings it to the ground. On the ground level, what does it look like for us to walk out the gospel? And I can't think of a more practical way to, uh, or area to apply the gospel to than applying it to our marriage relationships, our parenting father-son parenting relationships and our work relationships. This is on the ground, practical, lived out. And this may be a little challenging and convicting for some. That's okay, because we'll also see that there is power for us available to walk this out, to live this out through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit. Let me just start with a a statistic here from a lady named Shanti Fildhan. She's a Harvard-trained social researcher, popular speaker, bestseller, author for women only, Woo! number of other books. Um, and one of the books uh, she has, Highly Happy Marriages, she, she, she has a, a stat here. Uh, 53% of happy couples agree with the statement that God is the center of our marriage. Okay, 30% of struggling couples disagree with the statement God is the center of our marriage. And she writes, highly happy couples tend to put God at the center of their marriage and focus on him rather than on their marriage or spouse for, the f- for their fulfillment and happiness. Kendall and I have had the, the privilege of doing pre-marriage coaching with several couples. We have at least one couple here in this room. And it's, it's something that my wife and I love to do. It's fun. It's fun talking about marriage. It's fun talking about our own marriage but then sharing the joys and the pains of marriage with others and talking about those things, some of the traps to look out for and and, and some of the things to celebrate within marriage. And one of the very first questions that we ask when we meet with couples for pre-marriage coaching is the question, why Why do you want to get married? So why? You're here, you're engaged, you want to get married, why? And for for some, it might be as simple as, and they may not say it like this, but they, they want to be happy. They just want to be happy, and they think, if I marry this person, I'm going to be happy, right? <laughs> Did anybody enter marriage like that? Like, that was your mindset? You, you can be honest in here. If it, okay. 
Okay, for some, that's their mindset. Actually, a, a lot of people. Maybe not so much Christians, and maybe, maybe more Christians than we're aware of. Other reasons, you know, that people may want to get married, and these aren't necessarily responses that I've gotten. Most of the folks that we've done pre-marriage counseling with would give Pastor Keith a good biblical answer to that question. <laughs> to glorify God, reflect His glory in our marriage, you know, something like that, right? But there's all kinds of reasons. There's, there's kind of a mixed, you know, I'm sure there's all kinds of mixture of motives of why somebody wants to get, get married. And it's important to, for, for me to ask that question it, on the front end because I think that when, if you go into it with a wrong view of what it's for, what it's designed to do, how God made it, and what it's, what it's here for, then the function of it becomes very difficult and hard and it becomes dysfunctional. And it becomes distorted. If, if you're looking to marriage to fulfill something that God didn't create it to fulfill, like to, to kind of make you happy, like to be your, your God, if you will, or that spouse to be your, the one, to be your all in all instead of Jesus, then you're setting yourself up for disappointment, right? And so that's the, the, the first thing I want to start off is why, you know, why get married? You know, why get married in the first place? Paul talks about this idea of marriage. The world would, would say, you know, that, that actually Chris Rock, comedian, said you can either be single and lonely or you can be married and bored. Okay? That's, that's a, a, a common perspective for how the world may view marriage as something that's boring. And so the alternative for many folks is to, to cohabitate, to to live and experience the privileges of a marital relationship, but not actually enter into that covenant commitment of marriage relationship. And that's what a lot of folks choose to do. Just forget the covenant. Let's just sleep together. You know, and, that, and that's painful. That's destructive. And so God has designed marriage to be beautiful and glorious and good. And there are many good benefits to marriage. And there are many blessings from doing things God's way. You know, we can save ourselves a lot of pain if we do things God's way, if we follow His design. And so in this text, in Ephesians chapter 5, we have God's design for marriage. Paul unpacks for us the ultimate, deepest meaning and purpose of marriage, as we'll look at. And then he gives us practical ways that the marriage relationship is to function as husbands and wives. And so we're going to look at that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5. And we'll start in verse 22, and we'll read through verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself as its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, 
because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And all God's people said, Amen. Uh, by the way, I, I do want to ask husbands and wives, no, no elbowing tonight, okay, as we're, we're talking. <laughs> there may have already been a few of those. So, Paul starts with this very controversial topic of submission. He, he addresses the wives. And this is actually, this is the order that, that Paul addresses these relationships. The, the parents, or children, parents, slaves, masters, wives, husbands. He starts with those under authority, if you will. And, and the first one that he addresses is wives. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And so, one of the very practical roles of a wife, applying the gospel to her marriage, is to have a posture of submission to her husband's leadership. And notice how Paul connects the relationship between the wife and the husband to the relationship between the church and Christ. Okay, there's the center point. There's where marriages are to center on the gospel, namely Christ, and their and, and the relationship between Christ and the church. That's that should be the motivator for us, husbands and wives. This marriage relationship, as we see here in this text, has its deepest and ultimate meaning in reflecting the glory and the beauty of Christ and His relationship. With the church. That's what marriages are designed to do by God, to reflect that relationship. And when, when wives take that humble position, yielding to and supporting the leadership of their husbands, they're adorning the gospel. They're applying the gospel to their marriage relationships. And I know this can be challenging. Both, all of these instructions are challenging. And thank God that He didn't leave us to our own resources and our own mere willpower to live these out, to walk these out. Because these are, these are high standards for Christian couples, for Christian marriages. And, and Christian marriages of all marriages should be different and, and have this, this distinction of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, humility. So to illustrate a little bit what this idea of submission one of the things that, that I thought about was, was dancing. Marriage is like a dance. Marriage is like a dance. And if you're going to dance with a partner, then there has to be a few elements that need to take place. There needs to be a leader. There needs to be a follower. There needs to be some cooperation, some communication. And if you're going to dance with a partner, if you're going to dance with your spouse, you should enjoy it or at least try to. Try to enjoy it. Now, I know this may seem like an unfair illustration for some of you, because some of you may be like, I can't dance. I can't dance at all. Actually, I, I, I told that to a young couple that's engaged, seminary students that just got engaged, and I was telling them how marriage is like a dance, and, and the, the girl was like, oh, man, I can't dance. And uh, some of you may feel like that. 
Um, but the truth is, everybody can dance. Everybody can dance, just like everybody can sing, okay? It's just a matter of whether you enjoy the dance, and you actually get out there and do it, whether you seem to do it well or not, and whether you cooperate and press through the hiccups that are involved in any dancing. Uh, my wife and I, when we first got married, uh, early on we were at a marriage conference, and they had, they had dancing at this marriage conference to teach about marriage and how marriage is like a dance. And there were some great parallels there involved. And I was so excited because I loved the dance. At our wedding, I mean, I cut loose like a wild man at my wedding. And I was like jumping like this high off the ground. I mean, I was just, I mean, I was just dancing. I, and I don't consider myself a very good dancer. I just like to dance. It's fun, you know. It's fun to dance. I'm not very skilled at dancing. I, I could probably just dance better by myself, you know, like, like David, just kind of, you know, just go and do my thing. Uh, and actually, it takes more work and intentionality for me to dance with my wife. <laughs> Communication, patience, consideration of her. And so, um, so anyways, and of course, she danced with me at our wedding. We just danced the night away. Somebody said, you know, that was the most jumping wedding reception <laughs> That I've ever seen without alcohol. Because I was dancing like I was full of alcohol, but I wasn't full of alcohol. I was full of joy. I was full of the Holy Spirit. And just grateful for the goodness of God for allowing me to enter into this beautiful design of marriage. That is like a dance. And so in the dance, again, there's communication, there's cooperation. And... Kendall and I were at this conference, and I was so excited. I was like, come on, come on. And this is actually typical when we're at wedding receptions. I'm like, come on, let's go. It takes her a little longer to warm up to the idea of getting out there and dancing in front of other people. And so I have to be patient with her in that, okay? Well, we were newly married, and, and I, wasn't, I, was, I was excited, and I wasn't very patient because she wasn't responding like I hoped that she would. And then all of a sudden, my feelings were hurt. So being a little vulnerable with you guys. So my feelings got hurt. And then all of a sudden, I shut down. All of a sudden, I have no desire to want to dance. Actually, I just want to go home now. Let's just forget this conference. Let's just go home and chill, you know. So that was my attitude. And then all of a sudden, she's like, she gets into it. She's ready to go. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? We ended up leaving. We left the conference. And we were not very happy, and we had conflict, the, the beginning of marriage. Um, and thankfully, I felt better because there were other married couples there that we know and love who had been married for uh, quite a lot longer than we have, and they experienced the same thing. <laughs> Praise God. So I felt a little bit better about that because we weren't alone. But those of you who've been married any amount of time know that there is conflict that will occur. There are challenges that will occur. There are communication issues that will occur. There are feelings that are going to get hurt. There are things that you may forget, guys, like a birthday or an anniversary or some special event or something that you were supposed to remember that you just didn't know or you forgot you were supposed to remember. There are just things that happen. And in the dance, we just got to roll with it. You know, if, if you miss a step... Or when you step on each other's toes, you know, you, you don't just, you don't give up. You just be patient and you work with one another. You try to communicate. Take some dance lessons. <laughs> you know, marriage coaching, counseling. So anyways, I think that illustration is helpful for this idea of submission. Because in, in the dance, 
ideally, the, the man is to lead, right? So there has to be a leader and there has to be a follower. And in marriage, God has designed men to be the leaders. He refers to the husband as the head. The husband as the head. So that implies leadership. Husbands are to be leaders. They're to be the priests of their home. They're to be the spiritual leaders of their home. They're to be the providers in their home. They're to be the protectors in their home. Those are three areas of leadership that husbands are to to lead in. Now, this does not imply inferiority on the on, on in in the, the wife and in, in the wife's role. Okay. It, notice it, it doesn't say the husband is Christ. It, Paul is likening the husband to be like Christ in, in the, the role. So there's not like an, an equal, there's not like, guy, husbands are not Christ, okay? They're to, they're to re, ideally, they're to reflect Christ, right? But husbands are, we, we sin, we fail, we mess up, we blow it. And, and wives do too as well. And so we got to forgive and forbear one another. And so I think it's important to note, note that too, that, that husbands are, are to be like Christ in the way that they lead their families. Wives are to submit to their husbands. And I know that in talking about this, there's the danger of those relationships where there's abuse, where there are domineering husbands that are aggressive and abusive verbally or physically. And that's just wrong. It shouldn't be like that within the relationship. And I think, that, I think that wives, if they're in a relationship like that, they need to stand up and they need to say something. And if they're in danger, then they probably need to get out of that situation. You know, there may need to be separation or so on. And if that's ever the case in anybody here, I, I would love to know about it and, and help walk through in any way that I can as a pastor here at City Church, any relationships like that. But thankfully... As far as I know, we have some healthy marriages here. Yet, marriage is, is difficult and it takes work. There are checkups that need to take place. There are, just like your car, if you drive your car for so many miles, you need to get, it, you need to get the oil changed, all right? So, some of you guys are like, oh, I need to get the oil changed. You, you need to get your tires rotated. You need to change the air filter, the fuel filter. You need to do basic things to tune up your car so that it continues to function properly down the road. And your marriage is similar. Okay, you need, you need tune-ups. And that's why this is good for us. That's why this text is good for us here that we look at what does God require for, a, for wives? What does God require for husbands? And again, I think it starts with us looking at the purpose of marriage. If we're going to function appropriately in the marriage relationship, we need to know the purpose of it. Okay, and again, the ultimate purpose of marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. So, again, I also want to say this to, to wives. I don't think that, that wives submitting to their husbands means that they need to be pushovers. Let, let me just read this here. The, the headship and leadership role of husbands gets distorted because of sin. Men in their sinful state have their roles as husbands distorted when they become hostile and domineering in their leadership of their wives or when they become lazy and indifferent in their leadership of their wives and their, their families. So there's, there's, there's two ditches that a lot of husbands tend to fall into. One is being hostile and domineering and 
this is where we're going, this is what we're doing, and it doesn't matter what you say kind of attitude. And then there's this kind of lazy, indifferent kind of, you know, let the wife lead everything. Both of those are unhealthy for a gospel-centered marriage, for a Christ-centered marriage, for a healthy marriage. And then with, with the women, women's role in marriage relationship becomes distorted when a wife's intelligent, willing submission turns into an unfiltered obedience or when she becomes brazenly insubordinate. And so if a husband is trying, in his leadership, is trying to get a wife to do something that's wrong or sinful, then the wife has a higher authority to stand with and appeal from the scripture of what God says, right? And so wives need to have the courage to do that and the boldness to do that and, and, and to do that when, when it's necessary. And again, sin didn't create this idea of headship and submission. See, God designed, he created the man and he created the woman and it wasn't sin and the fallenness of the broken world that created the roles like that. God did that before there was sin, right? Sin just made it a lot harder for that to function like it's supposed to. And just like everything else, work is harder, marriage is harder. You know, there are, there are problems that every marriage will face. There's communication problems. That the first marriage, the very first, Adam and Eve, had problems in their marriage. Wouldn't you say? Okay. There's communication problems. Blaming, complaining. She did it. He did it. Uh, there were spiritual problems. They were disconnected from God. They sinned against God. Eve was listening to the devil. I mean, that's a spiritual problem, right? And then, and then Adam, just he's disobeying, just straight up disobeying. He knew he wasn't supposed to eat that fruit. He just straight up disobeyed God. That's a problem. Then they had a problem with their kids, okay? Cain kills Abel. You know, they had financial problems. They didn't have any clothes. They needed some clothes, man. And, of course, God provided for all these, all these issues. God came through for them, and he does the same for us today through the gospel, through Christ. And even, you know, in, within Genesis and in, in the, the narrative of the fall, there's this allusion to, to Christ crushing the, the head of the serpent with this, this you know, this prophecy of, of Christ, his, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. And, and Christ overcomes for us. And, and, and again, that has to be the center point for us. If we're going to have healthy marriages, they need to be centered on Christ. We need to invite Christ into it. And we need to follow these biblical instructions that the Apostle Paul gives for husbands and wives. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and carry it through according to her gifts. And so it's beautiful when these roles are fulfilled. Okay? When these roles, when, when in the dance, the husband and the wife are both doing their parts, they're considering one another, they're fulfilling their parts, and they're walking it out. And then when they fail, and when they step on each other's toes, they, they communicate it, they talk about it, they forbear one another, they forgive one another, even as Christ has forgiven you, so you ought to do with one another. That's that's what a gospel-centered looks. A gospel-centered relationship or marriage looks like. We treat one another like Christ has treated us, namely on the basis of grace. 
we treat one another with grace better than your spouse deserves. Treat your spouse better than they deserve. If you're single, treat your roommate better than they deserve. Or uh, if you're in the workplace, if you're working, treat your coworkers better than they deserve. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's a gospel-centered relationship. That's applying the gospel to your relationships. Now I've spent enough time addressing the wife's role. Let's talk a little bit more about the husband's role. The husband's role is to love uh, their wives as Christ loved the church. So there is sacrificial love here. This is, this is dying, guys. This is laying down your life for your wife. This isn't easy. And again, thankfully, we're not left to our own resources because we have the power of the gospel that we can apply to our marriage relationship and every other relationship. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit that we can experience in those relationships. So prior to these instructions for husbands and wives, Paul gave a command in verse 18 of chapter 5. He said what? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So I think when we read these, these instructions here, we need to read them with the assumption that these are Spirit-filled Christians. These are with the assumption that we've... The, that we're obeying the, first, the prior command here, that we're filled, and, and we can't do that. We can't live this out well without the power of the Holy Spirit. And thankfully, we have that resource. We have God in us to bring about the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is a picture of Christ in the church. I love weddings. I love officiating weddings. I love attending weddings. There's... In many weddings, there's a lot of money and detail and planning and energy and emotion that have gone into these weddings, and it better be good or somebody's not going to be happy, right? There's always somebody like that, right? And I think it's worth it. It's worth it to invest all that in the wedding. I think, of course, we can be extravagant and go over the top, but it's worth it because, just like investing in your marriage is worth it. By the way, I, I do say to couples that we we pre-marriage coach with after every wedding comes a marriage okay so you not only need to prepare for the wedding you need to prepare for the marriage but it's worth it because weddings earthly weddings are designed to point to the greatest wedding that revelation talks about the marriage of the lamb the bride dressed in white beautiful escorted by her father down the aisle with every eye looking, seeing, and standing, delighting in, rejoicing in that day together, is all designed to point us to a wedding that's going to be so much greater, more glorious, and more beautiful. And Jesus is going to wipe every tear from our eye. There's going to be no more pain and no more sorrow. See, we look forward to that glorious day. And Jesus, I love... I love the song that, that either Kevin or Gabby chose uh, for us tonight, Ever Be On My Lips, and the lyrics in there, you will have your bride, free of all her guilt, rid of all her shame, 
known by her true name. Jesus is going to have a bride without spot, without blemish, that He is going to have before Himself. And so, when we look at that example of Christ and the way He treats the bride, this, this is a call for husbands to, to lay down their life. This is a call. When Jesus taught about leadership, He taught about servant leadership. Not to use your authority to lord over somebody, but to use your authority and your strength to serve those that you're in authority over. And so that's what gospel-centered work looks like. That's what gospel-centered marriage looks like, is that we serve like Christ. We love like Christ. We use our words to build up. We, we serve in practical ways, like doing the dishes, changing diapers, mowing the lawn, and so on. The list goes on. You and your wife can talk about the more practical details on your way home. Actually, you could ask her. And actually, I want to I encourage each of you couples t- here tonight to, to ask each other tonight or this week, is, is our marriage healthy? Is our marriage healthy? Is it healthy emotionally? Is it healthy spiritually? Is it gospel-centered? And, and if it's not, what, what's it going to take for our relationship to be healthy, to be centered on the gospel? And I want to encourage you to pray about that. Like, if, if, you're, if your marriage is not healthy, then it's not a good witness to your children. If you have children or anybody else who knows you and knows that you're a Christian, you want to flourish in that relationship. Your relationship, marriage, husband-wife relationship should be the most intimate earthly relationship that somebody has. You should, you should be able to share, trust your spouse. And, and feel that you have a safe place with your spouse and, and you can depend on them and so on. Again, I think the biggest problem with, with, marriage, with marriages is the problem of sin and selfishness. Selfish people really struggle in marriage. And I think we all have some selfishness in us and some fleshliness in us. And I, one of the things I often say with couples that were pre- coaching pre, for, with pre-marriage is that the more cooperative we are in the sanctification process, then, then the smoother marriage is going to go. The more cooperative we are with the Holy Spirit and Him convicting us and prompting us, you need to stop that. You need to change that. You need to renew your mind about that. The more we respond to God's prompting, the Spirit's prompting, the smoother and the happier marriages are going to be. The more resistant we are to what God is saying to us and about the areas that He wants to change in us, the more difficult marriage is. I mean, it's, one, it's just hard to be around a selfish person, a proud, selfish person, period, right? But then if you're married to somebody that has unchecked pride and selfishness, then that's, that's hard. That's really hard. And so... Paul calls husbands to love, love their wives like Christ loved the church. That would, if, we, if husbands did that, that would, that would set the stage for wives to flourish under the leadership of their husbands. And children flourish best when they have a mom and a dad who love one another, who are walking out these biblical roles of submission and respect, love and respect, sacrificial love. You see, when, 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 when children are brought up under that kind of a, a relationship, it, it brings a sense of security for them. And unfortunately, we have a fatherless generation right now that 
divorce is is high. It's common, and and it it does damage to the children and and family members that are involved in that. By the way, I'm I'm going to open up for Q and A at the end of this. I know I'm kind of hitting on a lot of stuff here. I, if anybody has a, a question or something that you would like me to qualify or, or, or dig deeper into, I'm going to open it up for that. Would love to to go a little deeper. So, verse 31 says that verse. Let's see. Paul quotes Genesis. He goes back to. Genesis and verse 31, he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound. Now, many of us could, would, would probably resonate with the idea of marriage being a mystery, <laughs> hard to figure out, and I don't know what happened. I don't know what needs to happen. You know, um, Here, Paul's talking specifically about the mystery of Christ and the church. But uh, in verse 31, this is, this is a key text on marriage, a foundational text. And it tells us that a, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In the marriage relationship, there must be a prioritizing of one another over every other earthly relationship. Your spouse needs to become priority over every other earthly relationship. And there's, there, needs to become a, there needs to be a unifying, a, a, a sense of unity and, and connection. And, and the scripture says you become one flesh. You become one. That's beautiful. It's awesome to have another human being that you are fully known by, warts and all, and fully loved and accepted by. It's awesome to have another earthly relationship that you are forgiven by when you when you hurt them, when you do wrong, and, and that you can extend forgiveness and grace to when, when they do wrong or when they blow it. It's awesome to know and be known in this relationship. So in verse 33, Paul gives a summary statement, and he says, Let each one love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects the husband. So we'll go on from marriage to gospel-centered family. Verse one of chapter six says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. For, for many years, about six years, I was a volunteer in the juvenile detention center. And one of the things that I emphasized to these young people, these teenagers who were in jail and things were not going well for them, was to obey and honor their parents. That's a great place to start for children to respond to the leadership of their parents because it's God's order. It's God's design. And there's a promise there that things would go well, that you'd live long. And that's good. That's for the good of the children. And so as parents, we want to teach the children to obey, to obey mom and dad for their good. Not just because not merely because we want peace in the house. But we want, when they grow up and they're out of the house, they know how to respond properly to authority so they don't get thrown in jail, so that they don't get, they don't damage relationships and, and get burned and, and so on. Fathers, he addresses fathers in the next verse, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This is, this is family discipleship here. 
And fathers are to lead out in family discipleship, not provoking their children. What, what's another version you guys got? Exasperate? Somebody got exasperated in the version? Don't provoke your children. So I know that I've caught myself at times as a dad doing this or starting to do this. So I think there's, there's two thoughts here. One is that, that we can put unrealistic expectations on our children that discourage them. Like we, 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 just, we put an expectation that's way too high and unrealistic and, and, and so on, and we can discourage, you know, just, yeah, get them discouraged. And, you know, I, we, we, can, we can provoke them. We can kind of use our strength to kind of get back at them, to kind of provoke them. Like, oh, oh you, you don't want to do what I said? Instead of, like, taking the time to, to instruct them and get down and, and, exp- and maybe discipline them, you know, maybe a spanking if needed, instead of, like, taking, doing the harder thing that takes more time and energy and focus on the relationship and on them, kind of doing what's, what's easy to just kind of get at them, you know, to provoke them. Any... Any dads relate to that? Okay, thank you. I'm glad I'm not the only one. So dads, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't provoke them to anger. Set them up for success by being patient with them, instructing them, getting down on their level, teaching them, explaining to them not just the what, don't do this, but explaining to them the why of don't do this. Okay, giving them your heart and the heart behind what, why they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. That's work. It's work to try to get the why into the mind of a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old. It's work. It's, parenting is work. It's messy. It's stinky at times. It's painful. It's hard. It's frustrating at times. And hats off to all you mothers here, and especially stay-at-home mothers that, like my wife who are with the kiddos for a long period of time. That is a lot of hard work. Raising up children. So dads are to lead in, in disciplining and instructing the children in the, in the Lord. In the, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Family discipleship. One practical way we can do this is scripture memory. And we've started doing this. There's, there's an app called Fighter Verses. It's like two or three bucks and you can put it on your, your, your phone. And there are 76 foundational children's verses that go along with it. And there's an image on there that kind of helps them remember it. And it's just, it tickles my wife and I to hear our two-year-old. And we haven't, like, started really working with her. She just kind of caught on as we're working with the the three and the five-year-old. And she's saying, in the beginning, God's way in the heaven and the earth. You know, she sounds so cute the way that she says it. And it's just, it's fun. We're sowing seeds of the Word of God into our children, expecting that there's going to be a harvest from that. Expecting that God's Word will not return void. And we're giving them rewards if they quote the verse. And, and then we try to explain what does it mean. We don't want you to just parent the verse to us. We want you to know what this means and apply it to your life. And so anyways, that's been fun. That's been a fun endeavor that we've we started doing and we started doing it at our community group with uh, another family and so that's encouraging actually i want to invite any other families to join join us in that and uh, we've talked about doing like some kind of party once we get so many verses memorized with the kids and and they have verses for for adults on there as well and there are songs that go along with the verses to help you remember the verses and so anyways i want to encourage 
especially you dads, to, to lead off in that. To be men of the word. Wash your wife with the water of the, the word. Encourage and build up your children with the truth of Scripture. Speak it over their lives. Speak it into their lives. And let them see you feel the weight of the Word in your own life. Let them see that the Word of God is valuable and weighty to you, that it means much to you because you spend time in it and you respond to it when your life doesn't line up according to it. When you're convicted that you're not doing what the Word says. Okay, we'll move on. Gospel-centered work. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or he is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So gospel centered work. What is the what does the gospel look like in the workplace? So and why don't we, for the sake of application, think of bond servants as employees, employees obey Obey your masters with, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, not as eye-pleasers. And do your work as unto God, not unto man. Do it knowing that God sees, God cares, and God will reward. And your work has value. Whether man gives you the pat on the back or not, your diligence and faithfulness in, at your job place has value. So you see, the gospel changes how we view our work. It changes how we do our work, and it changes why we do our work. If you want a sermon on that, there's one on our website from Colossians chapter 3. You're welcome to, to check that out. I, I preached the message on the gospel in our work. Um, I don't have time to re-preach it here in these last couple of minutes. But the gospel should affect every area of our lives, our marriage, our parents, our parenting, our, our work. And if you're in a place of leadership at work, don't threaten folks that are under you. I'm going to get you. Be gracious and, and, and do so knowing that Christ is the ultimate master. And so if you're a supervisor, employer, reflect Christ and his leadership in the workplace. Amen? Father, I thank you for your church, for the bride of Christ, and for those here who are devoted to you and are devoted uh, to one another and committed to your purposes here. And God, we need you. We need the power of your spirit, the power of the gospel applied and, and filling our lives so that we can reflect your glory and your goodness and your beauty in this broken, dark world. God, may we rise and shine in this hour shine brighter than ever, and strengthen every marriage, strengthen every family. I pray anybody here tonight struggling, discouraged, hurting, confused, that, that God, you would just break through uh, with the light of your word, truth, and that you would sanctify us by your truth. 
that you would change our perspectives, God, where we're thinking wrong, where we've adapted the, the mindset of the world in any area, especially regarding marriage and family. God, may we throw it off and may we get your perspective and live according to it.